Here we go on a Monday night and Independence Day at that. Happy 4th of July from the Ira on Sports team. On your way to check out some fireworks. We've got plenty of fireworks ready to go for you tonight here on Ira on Sports. True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, not in the studio, but good reason you're celebrating our nation's independence in New York. Yeah, in the Hamptons, it's very nice. I went to the Mets game on Friday night, and everyone says, like, oh, baseball's dead, no interest. Boy, City Field was just packed. It was exciting. I mean, you could feel, I'll tell you what, there's baseball fever in New York City. Yankees, Mets, everyone's talking Subway Series, both teams playing great. And uh, New York, in many ways, honestly, is a baseball town. And when both teams are playing great, uh, it's going to be very exciting for the rest of the summer and then going into October. You know, as a Yankee fan, it doesn't bother me when the Mets are good. Because like you said, New York City's fun. When both teams are good, they're into it. It looks like uh, Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom are very close to returning. And I don't think a Subway Series is too crazy. We've seen it before. It came out on the Yankees' end. But it's not going to surprise me at all if we're seeing both of these teams play in October. We'll talk about uh, more about that a little bit later. Speaking of baseball, if you're a baseball fan, you know who Jim Codd is. He's going to join us at 735. Yeah, Jim Cott's going in in a couple weeks. He's going to be inducted in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Uh, He was finished. A lot of people might have missed his playing career in terms of he retired uh, in in before 2000. But he had 283 wins, 321 seasons. How about this stat? 16 gold gloves. Can you imagine that? 16 gold gloves. He's, he faced Ted Williams playing ball, and then ended up like he was. He's had a 25-year baseball career pitching for the Twins, the White Sox, uh, the Phillies, and uh, so it's it's great to have him on our show because here's a Hall of Famer. He also does a lot of broadcasting. People remember him. He's on ESPN, uh, MLB. He's did the Yankees uh, broadcast for like six, seven years. So he's had a like 35-year broadcasting career, 25-year baseball career. I mean, this is a, this is a baseball lifer if there ever was. Yeah, and it's a great interview. We'll have it out coming up for you in about 30, 35 minutes or so. So, Ira, we left last Monday night, got done doing our show, and we were in the parking lot and kind of said to each other, it's going to be a slow week for basketball. What could possibly happen? Maybe Rudy Gobert gets moved, but that was all we really saw. And a day later, everything changed and the landscape of basketball got shifted. I guess uh, one phone call, Kevin Durant calls Joseph Sy, uh, the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, and says, I know you paid me $40 million. I know you resigned uh, for a couple hundred million dollars. I went at $40 million when I couldn't play. I was injured for a whole year, and you knew you gave me the contract. I knew you brought Kyrie in here for me. We, we put that together. I knew you traded over the last five years five of first-round picks. They literally do not have their first-round pick for five years. You could only trade back-to-back, not back-to-back, but it's a swap. So, uh, But whoever thought the Nets were going to be bad and the, the Rockets were going to be great. So it, was, it wasn't that situation. But they, they have now put themselves in a position. Uh, and then he calls and says, I, I don't want to play here anymore. And it was weird because we saw earlier Kyrie opted into his contract. So he opted into his one year, the final year of $40-some million. And we thought, okay, now the Nets are going to run it back one year. Ben Simmons, Kyrie, Kevin Durant. But I guess what they're mad about, I guess it seems like Durant was upset that Kyrie was not given a longer-term deal. And because he wasn't given a longer-term deal, and he was forced to opt into it. But one of the reasons he wasn't given a longer-term deal was that no other team wanted to pay him anyway. So why should the Nets be paying Kyrie? But, um, you know, they don't have to honor the trade request. They can tell Kevin Durant, no, we don't want to trade you. But it seems like they want to honor that trade, and they will trade him, and they're going to also trade Kyrie. And, of course, they have Ben Simmons, who hasn't played in two years, it seems like. So it's a crazy mess in Brooklyn, and Brooklyn fans are really upset and angry and, and everything. How many few Brooklyn fans, Nets fans there are? And, and I think now Kevin Durant, he's one of the 10, 15, 20 greatest players of all time, but I can't see who's a fan of his at this point. It seems like he just makes enemies everywhere he goes. I don't want to say he's selfish, but he's a different kind of player. It's clear he's not a team guy from moves like this. I don't know what this does for his legacy. I don't, like I said, I, I don't know who's in his corner at this point, Ira. And I also don't know where he's going to go because apparently some of the deals that have been offered have been really, really big deals. And the Nets say that's not enough. 
Right. I mean, Durant was at Oklahoma City, and he couldn't play with Westbrook anymore, and then, then left as a free agent and went to uh, Golden State. After they after they uh, you know, lost to Golden State, he joined the team. So he joins Golden State, and he's upset that the Oklahoma City fans are mad at him. And he's been known to be on Twitter. He's had burner accounts. He's getting in fights with 10-year-old and 12-year-old kids <laughs> yelling about him. So he got upset about that move. Then he goes to relieves the Golden State after winning two titles and then goes over to Brooklyn. And then he's still upset. People are yelling about him about this. He's, he's still now, whatever team he goes to, I mean, I, I, it's, it's just it's hard to see this legacy of jumping around from team to team to team and a situation where he's just up a year ago recommitted to Brooklyn. Like he went there, could not play his first year. Uh, and, and, and 2020 was in a bubble. Kyrie didn't play in the bubble. 2021, they come out, they beat the Sixers in the first round. You saw last year, uh, Kyrie got hurt. They was playing with Harden. They lost to they lost to the Milwaukee. They lost to the, they lost to the Milwaukee Bucks in seven games. Amazing game. And then last year they're swept by the Celtics. So he's been there three years. They've won one playoff series in three years, and that's it. And it's just and now this whole thing. And they have no draft picks. They've traded away players like Karis LeVert and Jared Allen. This team is they just lost Bruce Brown, who was probably the third or fourth best fourth best player this year. And he just went. He just signed a free agent contract with Sacramento. So they are Denver, but they are they literally have nothing. The franchise is completely destroyed, and uh, they went all in on this this uh, putting Durant, uh, Irving, and then double down bringing Harden in. I mean, the Harden trade was what really even hurt them the more. But they had Irving and Durant. They're like, oh, this is our chance to get Harden. Let's trade everything to get Harden. And now they have no draft picks, no players. It's a disaster, and they're banking on everything about trading. If they trade, Durant, Kyrie's going to get them nothing back. They might have to get like Westbrook back or something. But but Durant, they're, they're hoping to get all these graphics back but maybe not. I mean, all these teams that would trade that would have graphics don't have graphics anymore to trade for Durant or teams that he doesn't want to go to. This is a really difficult bind for the Nets to be in now because Durant doesn't want to be there. So, Ira, you know, I'll ask you, and it, it's obviously been talked about a lot in the national media the past week, where is the landing spot for Kevin Durant? Because now, if you talk to Vegas, the, the betting favorite is Phoenix. We've heard now that they don't want DeAndre Ayton. They don't want to sign DeAndre Ayton. So it made sense to kind of swap the two players, add some other stuff in. But Brooklyn's saying we're not really interested. I have to think that Pat Riley's picked up the phone more than one time to try to lure Kevin Durant here. I do think that the Heat have some pieces they could move. I just don't know if that's enough for the Nets. Where do you think this thing finally plays out to? Well, the Heat would trade Bam. They would trade Tyler Hero. Um, those type of and, – and, and they don't have as many draft picks, too. They, they, again, they don't, they're not sitting – the Heat don't have tons of draft picks, extra draft picks. The teams that stock are like Oklahoma City has been trading, trading, and trading so much that they end up having – I think Oklahoma City has, like, most of the draft picks left. And certainly Durant doesn't want to go back to Oklahoma City. The problem with Durant is that that's the problem is the teams that he wants to go to. And also the teams like – his problem, he wants to be traded now, not sign his free agent. When he went to Golden State, they didn't have to lose anything to get him. It actually worked out great for him to go to Golden State. And when he went to Brooklyn, they gave up D'Angelo Russell for that trade, but it wasn't a huge loss for him to go. But now, whatever team wants him, then not just the draft picks, it's other players. So he goes, so he goes to the Heat, and they trade Jimmy Butler. Well, now he's going to be he's going to be like Jimmy Butler on the <laughs> Heat without Butler and someone else. So he's going to go to a team that's going to lose people. We talk about Carmelo Anthony. Remember, he was at Denver. He could have waited to the end of the year. Signed with the Knicks, and then not, and then the Knicks ended up giving away five superstar, five not superstars, but rotation players to four Carmelo Anthony. So he came to the Knicks and said, "Oh, where's all the players? I don't have any help." Well, but if he would have waited, they would have his help would have been there. But you can, that's the problem when you trade a superstar and give up a lot of players. And we see it happen in the NFL where guys want out, and it's going to take four firsts to get a, a top level quarterback. And then you wonder why there's nothing around the quarterback. Well, we don't have draft picks for the next three years to get you that receiver, to get you that offensive lineman. It's kind of the situation we're in with Kevin Durant. I don't know what's going to happen because, I, I, like you said, there's really no landing place that has enough pieces that the Nets are willing to take that would even be a competitive team. Yeah, if the Heat give up Jimmy Butler, Bam, and Tyler, they're worse off than the Nets. So, you know, what's the, the solution here? I don't know what's going to happen. I think it's going to be an interesting, uh, you know, I, it's going to take a few weeks, I think, for this to get panned out. Don't know what's going to happen. Either way, I, I, I wish him the best. You know, I, I've thought about it. I don't know where. I mean, it, it, it would be amazing if we went to the Lakers. So, I mean, they're talking about the, the Kyrie Irving, the Russell Westbrook trade to the Lakers, and somehow Anthony Davis for Grant. Now, that works. 
you put Durant, LeBron, and Kyrie together, which is crazy because Kyrie and LeBron hate. I mean, again, none of this makes any sense in terms of these teams. And then, but the funny thing is the teams that are winning, the Golden States, the Milwaukee's, they're just building, they're adding pieces. They're not doing this. Again, this is the problem in terms of what where Durant's going to. And what, and you're right, for his legacy is that if he goes and makes this other move and he, he doesn't work out, then again, where's he going to be ranked? I mean, he clearly, when I watch him, is a much better player than Steph Curry, but Steph Curry now now is now viewed higher than Kevin Durant, even though we've watched them just in the past four or five years. And, and it's just a Curry, you know, everyone thought Curry was going to leave Golden State. They said, oh, and Golden State, you know, lost all, Clay got hurt. Oh, he should sign with the Lakers. He stayed, and look what's happened. It's been great when he stayed there. So I like it. You know, of course, if you're a fan of a team, you like it when your superstar stays there. I did not want to see, I would not want to see Terry Bradshaw, Bradshaw leave the Steelers or when Franco Harris played the one year. Like, you grew up rooting for a team and you love that player. Uh, you like to say, and that's what, you know, Kobe Bryant with the Lakers is entire career it's great iron sports true oldies channel i'm mike balsamo so let's talk about some deals that did get done one of the premier headliners is going to be rudy gobert moving to minnesota well i think this was an amazing trade so Danny Ainge is now running the Utah operations and trading and whatever, whatever title he has, but he's the only one who's in Boston to be a big trader, but and accumulating draft picks, which really worked for Boston because they got Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. So he took Rudy Gobert, who clearly Utah lost to Dallas. Utah every year has a good record, great record. They, a couple years ago, they're number one record in the league, and then they just fall apart in the playoffs, and it's not been working out. Quinn Schneider quits, and so it is a total rebuild here, and Gobert has been a three-time defensive player of the year. He's phenomenal, but then some people say, well, he was a Exposed in the playoffs, Dallas they went small. They couldn't use him. But Minnesota is going all in. I like this sort of many ways. I think this could be a win-win trade. Minnesota has been troubled at getting star players there, but they do have Carlton Towns, who they re- they just extended for four years, two hundred fifty million dollars. And they have Anthony Edwards, who is a blossoming superstar on that team. So you have you have Towns and you have Edwards, and now you put another rim protector. And they just say, well, wait, Towns is like one of the best rebounders and block shotters, block shots in the league. You're putting another person. But Towns also won the three-point shooting contest. So he likes to hang around and shoot threes all the time. So you have a seven-footer that shoots threes, a seven-footer that gets rebounds and blocks, and you have Anthony Edwards, a superstar. You could see this work. And they gave up Beasley, Beverly, Vanderbilt, some other players. They did give up four first-round picks. So this is a super, from the Utah perspective, wait a second. We got four first-round draft picks for Rudy Gobert, who a lot of people in Utah didn't even like on the team. And they were getting all these rotation pieces, but we got four first-round picks. So I think they're happy with this. This could potentially be a win-win. And then the question is, what happens with Donovan Mitchell, their other superstar, who he cannot, he wasn't happy when they were winning being in Utah. You've got to think he's going to be out of there. Um, and so we're waiting for that phone call, like he'll be traded. Yeah, and as a Nick fan, the phones are open, Donovan, if you want to, you know, kind of swing this in our direction. What are some other moves that kind of stood out to you, you know, since we've talked last? Well, the, just on the trades things, uh, Malcolm Brogdon, people might not know much about him. He was in Milwaukee. He went to Indiana. He's been hurt the last couple of years. But when you watch the playoffs in the Celtics, who, of course, lost in six in the finals, so they were as close as you can get to winning a title, and they were sort of missing that backup point guard. Marcus Smart got foul trouble. They didn't really have uh, – Pritchard comes in. He ran out of their guard. Well, now they have one of the elite guards in the league. They only gave a first-round pick for him. So this could be a major move. And Danilo Gallinari, Dick fans remember him. He still can play. He's in his mid-30s, and he shoots threes, and he gets rebounds. He played for Atlanta. They waived him. Now he's on the Celtics. So the Celtics were missing – we're talking about their depth to the bench now they've upgraded it is this good enough to beat golden state is this good enough to beat anyone but it's still it's an improvement boston's really looking to improve and uh then dante murray is one of the superstars for the spurs he was traded to the hawks for three first round picks now atlanta's making this move because atlanta said look we have trey young we have the superstar we have to bring someone else in now murray's a point guard young's a point guard but they figure murray is actually a tall point guard and young is smaller so they can work off each other so this is a move to shake up the hawks because the Hawks last year made it to the Eastern Conference Final two years ago, and last year were bounced by the Heat in the first round. So this is like, we have Trey Young, let's keep him happy. I mean, this is what the Bucs said, sort of they don't want Trey Young to leave Atlanta. They don't want their superstar, so let's go all with another star and bring another star. And so I think it made sense for the Hawks to make that move. And then, but, you know, again, the moves, though, we're going to run through some of these. Like Bradley Beal stayed with the Wizards. He re-signed five years, $240, $50 million. Uh, Zach Levine stays with the Bulls. A lot of these stars stayed with their teams. Uh, the Knicks, they, Mitchell Robinson stayed with the Knicks, but they had probably one of the biggest free agents that transferred. Jalen Brunson, 25 years old, played for Dallas. was really a backup guard for two years, last three years. He won titles for Villanova. 
um, signs a four-year, $104 million deal with the Knicks. Did you realize that Brunson's agent is, is the son of the, of the general manager of the Knicks, uh, Leon Rose's <laughs> son? And also Brunson's uh, dad works for the Knicks. So I think everyone saw this coming. But I'm not sold on that trip. I'm not, I, just, I think Brunson, it was, I think he did great at the end of the year. But to, to sign, give him to think he's going to be the superstar of the Knicks, I think it was a mistake. Yeah, I think Knicks fans pretty much agree with you. This might have been a little bit of an overreach. I guess the, the thought process is let's keep the ball out of Julius Randle's hands, bringing it up, things like that. And that's kind of where the Brogdon trade is for me, Ira. What was the Celtics, you know, crutch in the in the playoffs and in, in the finals? Turning the ball over. I think they averaged 20 turnovers a game. They had over 106 games. Now we don't have to count on, um, you know, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum bringing up the ball constantly. We can get a, you know, a true point guard in here, and this should alleviate some of our issues. Right. I mean, I think that's – I think for the Knicks, what the Knicks say is, like they say, they have Brunson, R.J. Barrett, Randall, Mitchell Robinson. To me, that's still a team that's not going to make the playoffs. Like, I just, <laughs> I, again, I don't see where the Knicks are going. They're, I think one of the mistakes the Knicks have made in the past is they've given big money pe- money to players that are not big money players. So when all your money goes to players that are not really worthy of that, then that's the problem. That's why you're in you know, cap problems, and I think they're running into it. I, mean, I think back to Chris Childs. Years and years ago, Chris Childs was the New Jersey Nets. At the end of the year, he had this – Great end of the year. The Knicks said, oh, this would be great. Let's sign Chris Childs. And then he was terrible for the Knicks. Like, <laughs> I'm not saying Brunson's going to be terrible, but he doesn't fit. Brunson, to me, on a team is like a – he is the role he plays for Dallas is perfect. You know, a good, like, third, fourth player on a team, not someone who, oh, now Brunson's going to – because he averaged 16 points a game last year. He's not a superstar. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Like, another player, I'll give you another move, was Anthony Simons. No one knows who he is, but he plays for Portland. He's 23 years old, two years younger than Brunson. He signed for four years, $100 million with Portland. But Portland is saying, wait a second, we just brought, we have Damian Lillard, who's our superstar. We have just signed, traded for Jeremy Grant, who's really, really good. We're signed other players. Like, he's going to be an emerging player for us. So it seems like that four-year hundred works in the role for what they're looking for him, not with Brunson saying they're really going to count on Brunson now to be their star. And I just don't see it. No, I'm with you. I run sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Jim Cott joins us at about 7.35. Stick around for that. Anything else in NBA you want to talk about uh, here as far as uh, moves and trades we've seen in the last week? Yeah, let me just go over a couple. I thought that – I thought it was neat. that I think the trend was like uh, Lukens Dort is a player most of it. He was undrafted. I mean, a lot of these undrafted players, I just see them sign like five-year, $90 million to Oklahoma City. You saw teams like the Simons thing. Teams that took younger players, Tyus Jones with Memphis, you saw him in the playoffs when he played well when John Moran was hurt. A lot of teams took their younger players and gave them money and kept them. And I like that. I mean, that's what you want to see is you want to say, instead of just players moving around, I thought that those were good signings. The Warriors ended up losing Gary Payton, who played a very big role for them in winning their championship, and Otto Porter, who I love. They lost Payton to Portland, Porter to the Raptors. They signed Looney, and then they re-signed Dante. They signed as a free agent Dante Desencio, who remember from Milwaukee, who was starting from Villanova, a good player, was in Sacramento. So it was a free agent. So they're sort of using him to replace Peyton and Porter. But I like Peyton and Porter. Like, I mean, you would like them to have, you know, stayed for another year uh, with the Warriors. The Heat were interesting. They, everyone thought Victor Oladipo was going to sign this big contract. Well, he didn't. He got a, got a, like a one year, the same deal he had this past year, like one year, $11, $12 million for the Heat. Uh, they re-signed Deadman two years, $9 million, but they lost P.J. Tucker to the Sixers. P.J. Decker played a big role for them this year. You know, P.J. Decker two years ago played a big role for Milwaukee. They missed him. And now that I, when the Heat signed him, I'm like, I don't know. He's getting older. He's like 36, 37. But, you know, he played well. Now he's going to go to the Sixers, and I think he's going to play a big role for them. So that could be a, a big loss for the Heat. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks made some sneaky good moves. They re-signed Portis and Matthews, two of their bench players. And then they re-signed Joe Inglis, who was hurt last year but played for Utah. A great shooter, might fit in well with their system. The Lakers are doing what – you know, the Lakers lost Malik Monk, who might have been one of their better players, and they signed, like, Lonnie Walker. Um, they just – the Lakers are a situation where they're just with, their, with James Westbrook and Anthony Davis. They're just tied. They can't make these moves with these other players. I just would like to stay – they're just trying to find someone else to break in and do something. And, but really, you know, in many ways, all the uh, – all the moves we've made. Harden looks like he's going to go back to the Sixers, almost 100% certain. And then we're just going to see what Aiton does uh, and maybe get Colin Sexton, who played for the Cavaliers. But we're almost done with all the moves, except for Durant, Kyrie. And then the other 
one thing about the NBA is that you saw like the players that could get rookie extensions. So they were not eligible for agency, but you could sign them. And everyone was shocked that no one was shocked by John Morant getting five years, 231. Even Darius Garland for the Cavaliers, he's their star point guard, five years, 231. But then Zion, they're like, wait, Zion hasn't played any games for like for at all. But they, he's just too good a player. The, the Pelicans have are loaded with talent, and if he stays healthy, they could win a title. And he's and it's worth it. I think it's I think it's a good gamble to give him the five years, two thirty one. You're put together this perfect team. He plays well. So those were the those are the big NBA moves. I mean, it really went. It wasn't crazy, and it would have been crazy if it wasn't for Durant saying I went out and then blowing up the whole Nets team. So Ira, let's talk a little bit about college football because we've definitely seen the landscape shifting. And we see Texas, Oklahoma getting ready to join the SEC. They're the elite power conference, and they're basically saying, we're college football. You got to win this, and that's all anyone cares about because we're that good. So people are realizing we got to kind of get in the motion of this if we want to be considered the real thing. And what happened? We saw USC and UCLA say, we got to get out of here. We're joining the Big Ten. We're going to give this a fight, too. I was shocked by it. I mean, I, I I follow alignment. I think other people were shocked. People were looking for the Big Ten. I think if Notre Dame said I'm going to the Big Ten, that would have been, been that would have probably what people were expecting more. But in essence, the, the Pac-12's media rights deal, meaning that they sign for all when you turn the TV on for football, what you see on Saturday afternoons and all those things. The Pac-12's deal was coming up. So did the Big 12. That's the conference that Texas and Oklahoma were in. So those media rights deals were up, and the teams they wanted the. Uh, um, the play, they wanted the, the conferences said, okay, we're going to resign a deal. And it's harder once you're in a media rights deal. What the leagues have been saying is if you want to leave, you have to pay us all the money. So you, it's sort of like almost like rent or whatever. You have to pay our future rent if you want to break a lease. So the point <laughs> is they don't want to do this. They weren't going to resign it. So this was a time when the Pac 12 teams could, could leave. And uh, again, there's two, two, you have to look at this. Is SEC is going to pay their teams like $75 million a year. The Big Ten is going to be at $75 million a year. The Pac-12 might be at like 30 or 35, and the Big 12 could be the same thing. So these teams are saying, look, i got to move where I'm going to get paid $75, $80 million a year, and that's what the Big Ten and the SEC. They, we're shaping to a point where it's not going to be the Power Five. There's going to be the Big Two conferences. Both teams, both conferences now have 16 teams, and the question is which – What's going to happen now once these two big moves? Because the Pac-12 is left with really nothing. Um, if Oregon, if Washington, which are rumored to go to the Big Ten, and the Big 12, is, it seems stronger. But, it, again, the SEC and the Big Ten just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you come to a point where, where the SEC and Big Ten are going to say, look, we're going to just have our own. We'll have, our, we'll have a playoff system in our own. We'll have a champion. We'll call it Super Bowl. And the winner of the Big Ten plays the winner of the SEC in a championship game or something like that. And you know what? I kind of see that happening, too. And in a sense, you know, we've kind of talked about off air how, at least to me, it's kind of reminiscent of the PGA Tour, the way the NCAA works. And NCAA has basically had a monopoly where they don't really provide much to these teams. And there's nothing you can do about it because we're the NCAA. So what's to stop the SEC in 10 years from saying, we don't need you. We're the SEC. We're bigger than the NCAA. We're playing our own championship. You can do whatever you want. We're picking a champion. So I could see that happening where they line up against the Big Ten and say, we'll put our best versus your best. This is college football's national championship. We don't care what Oregon does. You know, that th- this is not our concern. And we become bigger than itself. Kind of like we saw with Liv saying, you know, we're – we're going to give these guys autonomy. They can do whatever they want. Come join us, and you don't have to be with the archaic PGA Tour. Right. I mean, it is it, – I think the next move clearly is Notre Dame. I, the Big Ten wants Notre Dame to come in, um, They to join it. I think Notre Dame has been waiting. They've been independent for all these years. But this might be the time where they move to the Big Ten. It makes sense in terms of the they play Michigan, they play Michigan State. Some people rumor that they play Stanford every year, that if Stanford's there, then that's another one of the rivals. They play USC every year. It sort of fits with that. Um, I think one of the other things they're talking about is the ACC. You have Florida. You have Miami. Florida State, Miami, uh, what would they move? Are they going to move probably to the SEC? People are talking about that for a while. And then what happens to schools like North Carolina and Virginia that people think should go to the Big Ten? I mean, we're in a situation where maybe each SEC and Big Ten will have 25 teams. But they're not going to bring teams in that are going to hurt whatever team comes in. And then the other teams are the leftover teams, like, say, an Oregon State. You know, what, where does Oregon State go? Where does a Washington State go? And, and what conferences they join? But the idea that we grew up with when we were younger that, oh, there's ACC, which is the Southeast, and then there's you know, the region, 
That doesn't make any sense. I mean, now the Big Ten stretches from California, USC, UCLA, all the way to Rutgers. You know, that's the whole conference. And it is all about football. It really is about football. This is done because of football and the amount of money. It's not basketball. It's not because cause think if you're like a sport at UCLA and you play like I guess, a, a different sport. Like where are you – how are you going to play in, in baseball against the Rutgers baseball team? I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where these other sports, the consideration, weren't placed in, a, in much because there's like this is only football and it really isn't even basketball too even though UCLA of course brings I mean it is funny to think that UCLA basketball will now not will be in the Big Ten playing Michigan Ohio State and those teams but uh, um, but also when these conferences get so big it's not like you're if you're a Penn State fan oh we're going to play USC every year UCLA we're going to play one, them once every four or five years they could still be in the conference but you're not going to have the every single year you're going to play every single you couldn't do it as a football team or even a basketball team of 2018. Ira on sports got about uh, 10 minutes or so until we get to uh, Jim Cott here. Going to be a great interview. What's going on in uh, Formula One? Well, yesterday was one of the greatest races I've ever seen in Formula One. I'm out in the Hamptons going around and people were saying, all, every, I had a Ferrari hat on. Everyone was talking about the race. I mean, it was Carlos Seitz, his first pole in 150 races. He won the race. His first time he won. Uh, but it was, it, the race had absolutely everything. I mean, at the first to start, Verstappen jumped to the, lead, the, the race leader, and the, there was one. There was an accident that was so bad. Zoe Grandu flipped his car, flipped over, went on the top of the top of the car on the ground, went over the wall. So there's a wall, flew over the wall, and went into a restraining fence. You look at his accident, you're like, there's no way he could survive. He actually didn't survive. He didn't even have to go to the hospital. Uh, I, it's absolutely amazing. They did not show the accident for 30 minutes. They, they stopped everything because he could have been seriously injured. They didn't want to show the accident. And then it comes out that they had to cut him out of the car, and then he was fine. I mean, just minor injuries. And, there was an, and it caused like four other cars to have an accident. So the race was delayed for an hour. So that was just a crazy thing to start the race. But then during the race, uh, and that knocked out George Russell, a Mercedes driver. But then after an hour delayed, Seitz, the, it starts again. Carlos Seitz had the, the race to the first. Seitz was against Verstappen, almost pushed him in the grass. And then uh, Seitz went off the track, Verstappen then had the lead. And the Verstappen's going around the track, and he blew his tires out. But he was right next to the pit, so he was able to get it fixed. But because he was trying to, anyone who knows when their tire goes out of here driving, he damaged his car because his tires was blown out. But then it, was, it sort of bothered the rest of the race. He wasn't really much of a factor. And the, then what happened was that Seitz and Leclerc are the two top Ferrari drivers. Leclerc is considered the better of the two drivers in terms of the polls. But there was a point where Seitz has won, Leclerc's two, and Leclerc's screaming on the radio, let, tell Seitz to let me pass him. I got to pass him. I got to pass him. But they ended up pitting in a way that after on a pit stop, Leclerc did not pit. They told him stay out there. They pitted Seitz, put soft tires on, which are faster tires, and Leclerc stayed out on his hard tires. Well, what happened? Seitz then took the lead, and Leclerc goes back to fourth. And there's, there's a point in the race where you had Lando Norris and you had uh, from McLaren, Alonso from Alpine, Hamilton, Leclerc, Perez from uh, Red Bull, all like, racing. Like it was almost NASCAR style racing, which is so cool on the Silverstone track in Britain and Great Britain. But uh, but Leclerc was furious because he was on the wrong tires. Everybody else had soft tires. He finished fourth. Seitz finished first. Perez was second. Hamilton had a good race. He's from England, and so it was important for him. But he finished third. But it was actually he's been struggling this year. So that was a good good uh, finish for him. But and Leclerc was fourth, and Leclerc was upset. It's like, look, I'm a, you know, I'm the star driver. Like, why did you have me stay out and not have have Sites get the faster tires? So that caused again. I love I love um, Formula One because the drivers, the teams, it's a team concept and an individual. But something we talked about with Liv, which they might get to when they start having different golfers. So that aspect of us. But it was a great race, a great track, and congratulations to Carlos Sites of Ferrari for getting his first victory. So keeping it with uh, racing, what happened in NASCAR? Well, there was another good race. Tyler Reddick won his first race. Everyone's winning their first races. I'll tell you. <laughs> you know, the thing is, they're all changed. They're changing all the cards and all these divisions to trying to make it more. They don't want one guy to have one advantage or woman have one advantage in terms of their car. So they've been changing it, and now you're seeing these first-time winners come. And Reddick won the Road American race, beating Chase Elliott, defending champion. And they battled at the end. Those two were clearly the best drivers on this Road America course, and uh, other drivers. There's, you're starting to see in NASCAR the drivers that are great on road course 
courses. Carl Larson is great on all courses, so is Chase Elliott, but there's some people that are very specialized on road courses, and NASCAR has pushed. They like what Formula One has. They're like, we don't need super speedways. Like, we, they, they're pushing for more road courses this year. I think there were six or seven when there's usually like one or two. Um, but t- congratulations for Tyler Reddick on the good win at the uh, Road American race. So let's shift gears, go to golf. You'd mentioned Liv earlier. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But on the PGA Tour, we saw, I, I hate to say lackluster, but there really wasn't a better way to describe the field um, th- this week at the John Deere. Well, again, people keep saying, you've got to stay on the PGA Tour. They're yelling at all the Liv golfers. But the, the golfers don't play all the time. The, the, who was the best golfer? Daniel Berger pulled out of the tournament. And, you know, JT Pose didn't win. But if you watch, no one was watching the John Deere Classic. It was, there was no big names, in the, not just in the leaderboard, but in the tournament. And because they're not playing, they, it's not like Rory and Justin and Jordan Spieth are going to play every single PGA Tour. They don't even play half the events, it seems like. So to think that, that again, that's one of the Christians of the Live Golfers. And, and so you're turning on your TV this weekend. I much prefer to see the Live Golf Tour. You had Brandon. Grace, Carlos Ortiz, Patrick Reed, Dustin Johnson, Tets, you know, they were, they, they had better stars. And so I think that's one of the competitions. Uh, one of the things is that if they live, they're going to have eight events this year, the 14 next year. If all their stars play all their events, that's a better format than having it, a tournament every week and then having just people that no one knows who these players are playing in the PGA Tour. So let's talk about live for a second. I don't know, Ira, what Brendan Grace had earned for his career going into the past weekend. But it doesn't hurt when you take home $4 million for a win. Well, he took $4 million. J.T. Posen, who won the John Deere, took $1.2 million. To put an extent, is Dustin Johnson finished fourth and had won $1.2 million in the Live Tour. And you can just go through numbers like Bryce DeChambeau finished in 10th place in the Live Tour. He, had, he earned $560,000, whereas the 10th place in the PGA Tour at the John Deere would be one seventy nine. Brooks finished 20th. Sergio was uh, uh, 26th. Phil was 42 out of 48, but um, it was like, look, there's my, I wish I could have seen this tournament. It seemed they did things differently. I mean, I read about it. They had music on the courses. Um, they're trying, I, I follow all these golfers on social media. And so when they're on the course, Bryson is like filming himself on the course. Like they had a film group filming what's going on. So I, it's not, you know, I guess it's different. And, but I think it was, it's, it, I'm not, I'm not the most anti, I mean, people are criticizing me for this, but I'm not the most, anti. there's things they're trying to do to make it forget where the money is coming from, who's financing, but just the aspect of trying to make golf change it up a little bit. Uh, and I think if you're – look, the most important thing golf has to have is that every week or whatever they time they compete, we want to see the best players. Like if you saw the Steelers play and, and they have their reserve clause play, their reserve players, I hate that. Like I want to see the starters play like every week. And if you, if you go to the Heat game and everyone's a load management and they're only playing – I think that's what people want. Just because they want to see the stars play. And when they're watching the event, they just, and that's what I think. They don't want to see minor league golf and saying it's a PGA Tour event. And Liv added another name to their stables. Paul Casey's going to make the switch. Casey's interesting. Three PGA Tour wins. He's 42 years old. He's going to be one of those other golfers that say, oh, he's over the hill. He's too old. But as we've seen, they're adding the young golfers and they're adding the old golfers and they're adding the superstars. So you can't just say, but... I think that you're going to see more and more names now. Now that Liv has turned, this is their second event. Uh, in two weeks, they have in Bedminster, New Jersey. It's going to be another big event. Um, so I think you're going to see. But it wasn't like, oh, 10 guys announced. But it's like it seems like it's now like one golfer this day, another golfer two days later. Eventually, Liv's going to have a better – right now they have like 25 of the top 100. But eventually they're going to – they probably have of the biggest names – most of the big names are really just, you know, you have uh, Scheffler, McElroy, Spieth, Thomas on uh, the PGA Tour. But you're starting getting most of the names. Like if you go to the Honda Classic, I mean, I go to so many tour events. People say, well, that's a name. I know who the names are because if you're following them around, you know. <laughs> but I need to use my stool. That's a name. Like there's Tiger Woods. He's a totally different. He's different than everyone else. But everyone, you know, Phil is huge. Like when I went to the PGA Tour, the PGA, I mean, the uh, U.S. Open, he had a huge gallery all around him. It was impossible. Not possible. It was hard to see him. But these other golfers that go around that just say, oh, well, he's the future of the PGA Tour. There's five people following him. No one's following these guys. No, I mean, we talked about it. as likable as Patrick, uh, Patrick Cantlay, Xander Shoffley, all these guys are. When you, you know, you go to these events and you don't have to fight to see them. You have to fight to get to Phil Mickelson. 
So it does go to show you can be young talent, but if the fans aren't aren't behind you and if the fans aren't committed to you as a, as a, a player and wanting to see you, it doesn't really make a difference. It doesn't move the needle. So it's going to be interesting to see how this pans out. Um, we've just got a minute or two, maybe three minutes, so we have to get to Jim Cott. Let's talk about a little bit of Wimbledon action. Right. Well, remember, there's no Medvedev. No Rublev, no Sasha Zare, Berrettini. These are the top, you know, top, there's been four of the top players that get in under the tournament. Djokovic, this, what I love about it, of course, is that next Sunday, Sunday morning, I want to see Djokovic Nadal, men's final, Wimbledon. I just want to see that. Djokovic won, you know, he's been rolling along. He has two more matches, and he's going to be into the, the finals. Nadal has three more matches. He wins the final. Djokovic has won 24 on grass. The key thing in the, in the thing is the four Americans made the round of 16. Uh, Taylor Fritz, Tommy Paul, Brandon Nakashima, who just who lost today, and Francis Tiafo. Um, Joker, which has been just cruising. In the quarters, he's going to play Sinner, the great Italian, young Italian player who beat Alcaraz, the great Spanish player. So um, it'll be interesting that that TFO won three matches, uh, then lost. Paul won four matches, then lost. Uh, um, the number the number three seed. This was in the Djokovic draw. Casper uh, Ruud, who we saw in the French Open final, lost in the second round. And Hubert Hercos, who's been on our show, the seventh seed, he lost in the uh, in the first round. But it it just seems like. Djokovic should not have trouble with center. Djokovic should be cruising into the final in this one. Now, the doll has a, probably one tricky match. Uh, he's been winning his matches well, too. Uh, Taylor Fritz got into the round of 16. He's actually made the quarterfinals today. Uh, but Kyrgyz, the match so far is when Kyrgyz over Tsitsipas. Uh, Kyrgyz is sort of the Draymond Green of tennis, <laughs> fighting, arguing, complaining, talking the entire match. And I, 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 this went, match went exactly how I thought it would go. Titsipas, who also does all these mind things, but he's not, he's semi fragile mentally, just broke down, uh, was hitting balls in the stands, couldn't stand what Kyrgyz was doing. Uh, just one of those things where Kyrgyz just kept talking to him. I thought that Kyrgyz should have been penalized more for what he was doing. It was clearly way out of the bounds. You've not seen anywhere, but Titsipas, and then Titsipas kept complaining what was happening. And, uh, but, now, but now Kyrgyz won again today, and eventually in the semis, Kyrgyz could play his one more match. He would play Nadal, which would be a must-see match in that half. So hopefully next Sunday, well, next one of the week, you know, next week on the show, we'll say, what a great men's final we had Nadal and Djokovic, but I'm crossing my fingers that happens. The women's side isn't so exciting. Serena out first round. Swiatek, who had won 37 matches in a row from Poland, but struggled. He never was really great on grass. And even though she was a favorite, she ended up losing in the third round. Only one American made it to the round of 16, Amanda Asanova, uh, who lost and who beat uh, Coco Goff in the third round. But short of that, it's been sort of lackluster in terms of names in the women's side of the draw with Swiatek out, Serena not advancing, and only one American woman. Uh, but again, it just all comes down to Nadal Djokovic in the final. So, Ira, you did attend a baseball game. It's always nice to see City Field, beautiful stadium uh, right there in Queens. Anything you want to touch on baseball-wise before we get to Jim Cott? I'll just say something interesting. So, first of all, the... I felt like at the stadium, again, this game was on Apple TV. So in the stands, they were showing SNY, which broadcast the 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 Mets games. But because SNY was a boxing game, they had like, there was a boxing match. And how many times (laughs) you go to like a baseball game and they always show like, you can't even get, you usually go to these sports events and like, you could go to like a game and there could be like something major on another. They will not be on no TV. Every TV will show whenever you're at the game. They don't show anything else. But I guess they did not have Apple TV in City Field, so you could not turn to the best <laughs> game, <laughs> which is insane. So you have, like, hundreds of TVs showing a boxing match. But um, instead of the game for, like, the obstructive view seats and the people in the VIP areas, um, I think the Mets – it does seem like the Mets do need another hitter. Like, you would think that, that Steve Cohn's going to make another trade, uh, Alonzo, Lindor. Like, you'd think that well, there needs to be something else, but they are getting the great pitching back. But uh, and then you look at the Rangers and like they're so I I saw like I like Corey Seager I just like well he's at the Dodgers he's a star player he was MVP of the World Series he's this and that I just felt so I don't feel bad for him he's signed three hundred million dollar contract but it's like boy what's your comment you made about the Rangers you said something I forgot what you said what the Texas Rangers. Yeah, like where where do, where do the superstars go to the Rangers? Yeah, like, well, well, they go there to die. I mean, look at Marcus Simeon, who was in MVP talks the last two or three seasons, who completely fallen off the map. I mean, they're they're trying. I'll give them that. It's not it's not a case of the of the Pirates or something like that where they don't want to feel the team. They do. It just nothing seems to work out in Arlington. 
oh, I mean, it's just like there was no, it's just a mess. Like, I, and, and, but I got to give credit. I'm tell you, the fans, that was packed. I said at the beginning of the show, I, there must have been, it was like 80, 90% filled. That was fireworks night. But I mean, the games, that's what's so cool about City Field and, and Yankee Stadium. It's so easy to get to by the subway. You just go up there, you're there in a few minutes. And it was fun to go to the game and watch it. But I just thought, I thought the common effect, what were people criticizing tennis, I mean, uh, baseball with this Apple TV and Amazon, whatever, <laughs> that it's impossible to watch. You can't just go and just turn your TV on and watch these games. I think they're, they're stupid doing that way. Make the games, like, it's one thing to be on cable or whatever, but don't put it on all these other services because it's really hard to find. I'm with you. Let's go to Jim Conn. It's Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9. And we're honored to have soon to be Major League Baseball Hall of Famer, one of the greatest pitchers in the game ever, Jim Cott, who just wrote a book called Good as Gold. So, Jim, thanks so much for coming on Iron Sports. Oh, you're quite welcome. Uh, happy to talk about the book. I've had a lot of fun doing it. So um, you mentioned in the book coming up in a, if it's a couple weeks away, you're going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. You've been there many times before for a lot of uh, induction ceremonies with David Ortiz, Tony Oliva, Gil Hodges, Bud Fowler, Buck O'Neill, and Minnesota. So just a few weeks away, what are your feelings uh, before the, your big day? Well, I think the closer we get to that day, the more, uh, you know, kind of there's an excitement there. Uh, it's been a It's been a great time of, I guess you'd say, gratitude and joy these last, seven months um and it's just a constant every day finding out something new that's going to happen so it's a very special honor in a very special fraternity that i've really known about since uh, i was 10 years old because my dad was such a baseball fan so to finally have it uh, come to reality uh, i have no idea what my reaction will be on induction day, but uh, I'm certainly looking forward to it. And you grew up in a small town in Michigan. Um, I, your dad was a, owned a dairy business and with a town, I think it was 5,000 people. And you, was, when you were growing up, you never imagined that you'd be from take, take you on a career that went from New Zealand to Australia to Taiwan, everywhere around the world playing baseball. Yeah, that's, you know, everything I've done, every paycheck practically other than when I was a teenager working has uh, has come as a result of being a baseball player and all the travels that you mentioned. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, it's been quite a special privilege, I think, to be a baseball player and experience all that I've experienced. I mean, I think people, when they look at your numbers, and it's just they're just stunning. I mean, the 283 wins, but 321 seasons, 2,461 strikeouts. You play 25 years. I mean, just to think, I mean, you're like Tom Brady before Tom Brady in terms of longevity. And 16 gold gloves. Like, you want to start winning the gold gloves. I mean, there are people, how many people kidded you that, you know, I, I could have won a gold glove, but you had won it so many times. But it's just, those numbers are, are just amazing. Well, I was fortunate. You know, I had a, a durable body. I was left-handed. Uh, uh, my control, as is the case with most young pitchers, was a little shaky in the early going. But, um, you know, I developed uh, into being a good control pitcher and uh, stayed pretty much injury-free. So, uh, you know, that's what really enabled me to, uh, to play for a long time. And then, I mean, from your book, one of the most – you were in the World Series 17 years apart, which is just amazing to think about. But in 1965 against the Dodgers, that's the famous game the series when Sandy Koufax would not pitch game one because of Yom Kippur. But you faced him in game two and won. And, and you had some interesting stories from the book about when Drysdale was knocked out of game one, what, uh, the, what he said to the manager. Yeah, when Alston came out to take him out, because as you mentioned, Sandy didn't pitch game one because of the Jewish holiday. And Drysdale said to Walter Olson, I bet you wish I was Jewish, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Which was uh, a clever line coming at that particular time. But, uh, you know, it was a tough assignment, obviously, drawing Sandy 2-5-7. and seven. But, you know, we've become friends. I'm hoping he can be at the induction. He is 86 now. He didn't know for sure if he could be there. But, uh, yeah, that's the last World Series where – Every win was a complete game win. All seven games were complete games by the winning pitcher, and it hasn't happened since. No surprise because how specialized the game has become. 
And I mentioned this, you you really, you hold hold no punches, pull no punches, I would say, in your book in terms of criticizing what you, where you see the game going. And one of the things I've said a lot is that I love, I love when I could go to a game and look who the starting pitcher is and say, okay, that's a game I really want to see. Like Justin Verlander is pitching tomorrow or pitching, you know, in a game or someone like that. And I think today with the openers and pitchers pitching one inning and two innings, it's taken away. Whereas like even like a sport like football, you don't take Patrick Mahomes out of the games. Patrick Mahomes can play the whole game. They're building their stars, whereas I think the star pitcher today is more diminished. Oh, no question. They're become like what we call long relievers, you know, years ago that pitched the early innings. And uh, it's kind of sad for the fans. I mean, I remember my dad in 1948 from our little town in Michigan, he drove to Cleveland to see the Indians and the Yankees play a doubleheader. They had 82,000 people there that night in the old uh, Cleveland Municipal Stadium. And uh, it was Vic Rashi and Allie Reynolds against uh, Bob Feller and Bob Levin. And, you know, you knew that all of the pitchers were going to probably pitch a, co- a complete game or close to it. So that was the big attraction to go to see the pitching matchup. It's uh, like in modern times, if, uh, for example, if Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom were healthy and they could see them pitch against, say, uh, a Clayton Kershaw and actually see him go the entire game. But uh, you don't see that. And and also, with all the days off and the way they're protecting players, uh, for example, in Minnesota, they have a maintenance program mapped out, so Byron Buxton is only going to play 100 games. Well, uh, Byron Buxton is one of the most exciting players in all of baseball. So if my dad takes me to a Twins game and said, oh, we're going to see Byron Buxton, well, there's only a 2-3 and three chance that he might be playing. And, uh, you know, so that part of it is disappointing, too, as years ago, I mean, my first game that my dad took me to, I saw Hank Greenberg and I saw Ted Williams. Well, you just knew they were going to play. They played every day. Yeah, I mean, that's the – and it really, that takes away the aspect. I mean, we're seeing it in basketball too, but just to be able to go to a game, make the attempt, spend all the money, and not see your stars, that is a problem. And, but you talk about it in terms of your pay. I mean, people were – I think you earned – it said in the book $2 million your entire career. And you, But there was a series of like 50 – almost every year was a one-year contract. In those days, you would just keep negotiating. You talked about how Clark Griffith in uh, um, Minnesota was just – you know, you won 25 games and they just kept giving you a pay cut even though you were their best pitcher. Well, that's the way it was before free agency. That's why we, you know, when Marvin Miller came along and we finally got free agency, had the owners been a little more uh, cooperative in terms of recognizing the value of players, but their attitude, most of the owners for a long time before free agency, hey, you know, you're lucky to be able to play because if you, if you weren't playing, we get somebody else. So they really tried to make you feel as worthless as you as they possibly could, and that's what enabled them to keep payroll down, and that's what caused the players to finally, uh, you know, stand up and say, "Hey, we we want free agency. We want, we want to be able to uh, go where we want to go." And and obviously the floodgates have opened, and the tails wagging the dog now because the owners because they can't trust one another, and they just keep wanting to outspend each other. Why? The players are the uh, benefactors of these outrageous uh, salaries that they're getting guaranteed for a number of years. And, you know, uh, we didn't have that before uh, 1967, I think, 68, right in there. I mean, in 1973, you were weighed by the Twins, and then you were, they said that, you know, we figure your career is over, you're 34 years old, but then you come to the White Sox, and when one year you win 21 wins, the next win you got 20. And uh, so it was, it, you sort of had these revivals throughout your career when everybody thought – you were done. You just kept getting better or coming back and having some of your best years. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, professional sports, at least from a pitching standpoint, and probably hitters too, it's a game of adjustment and a game of, you know, you constantly have to try to improve. And when I fractured my wrist in 1972, sliding into base, I was having a very successful season halfway through the year. And then my season was over. So coming back next year, I was a little slow, uh, you know, to kind of get my act together. I wasn't pitching very well, and I couldn't blame the Twins. I mean, I think my record was 11-12, and 12, and they had a couple of young pitchers, Dave Goltz, Bert Blylevin was already there, Tommy Hall was coming along, and 
So I think they just kind of said, well, his time is over. But I remember telling uh, Buck Rogers, our bullpen coach, I said, you know, my arm is beginning to, to come back from that half years of inactivity. And I said, I still believe that I have a lot of pitching left. And uh, where I was very fortunate is when Roland Heeman claimed my contract, I got back together with Johnny Sane. And Johnny kind of had me reinvent my motion. And, uh, you know, he was that kind of a coach. You know, he just said, if this isn't working, let's try something else. And then I was fortunate to have a manager like Chuck Tanner, who even though I went through some difficult times in 74, I wasn't pitching well, uh, he just kept giving me the ball and believing in me, and, and that's what enabled me to have those two successful years there and then also pitch for another eight years after that. And some of those years were with the Phillies, and I that was sort of my former baseball years. I remember you, you know, I was a Pirate fan back then, so you were, the, the, people forget the Phillies, the Philadelphia and the Pirates used to be in the same division. So big rivals, and uh, they had th- three really great teams, but they never made the World Series. They were, for all those years you were there in Philadelphia, those three years. Those were really physically the best teams that I ever played on. Uh, we won 100 games uh, two of those years, I think 90-some. The other won the division all three years. Uh, I wasn't used the same way, unfortunately. Uh, Chuck Tanner had told Eddie Ozark, pitch him every four days, pitch him every three days. Uh, he could pitch 300 innings for you. And uh, and Danny kind of spot started. He liked to match up against if the other team had a lot of right-hand hitters. So I never really got into a a good rhythm there. And then he used me to pinch run in, uh, I think it was in August and uh, slid into third base and cracked my kneecap. So I, my, my season was kind of shot there and I never really, I feel bad because I never really gave the Phillies fans, uh, you know, the best version of what I could have been. But uh, by the same token, we had great teams and uh, made great relationships there. And as you mentioned, our battle every year with the, uh, with Pops and Parker and all those great pirate teams, uh, we were the one-two punch in that National League East, and we had some really good uh, good battles there. And then after playing with the Yankees for a year, you went over to the Cardinals and what fi- and finally won your World Series in 82. And it must have fun. You were not the, the superstar pitcher, but you did play a role on the team in terms of in getting in a, a number of those games to, to lead the Cardinals to a victory in 82. You know, Whitey Herzog uh, became our manager after the Cardinals had uh, picked me up um, just, I think, out of desperation. They wanted some experience down in their bullpen, and I uh, I joined them in, uh, in 1980. And uh, then when Whitey took over, uh, I had started some games in 81. I did quite well. And uh, Whitey said, I really want you to be my lefty-lefty, you know, lefty-on-lefty reliever. Uh, he said, I'm going to build my pitching staff from the ninth inning back. He got Bruce Suter. We actually had Bruce Suter and Raleigh Fingers both for a short period of time. We had to trade one of them, and we traded Raleigh to Milwaukee uh, and got a few players there that were very helpful to us. But uh, having that role as a lefty-lefty guy, uh, I really kind of enjoyed it. And, of course, the, the biggest part of the enjoyment was that uh, – in 1982, we, we did win the World Series with a with a team that hit 67 home runs, stole a lot of bases, played good defense, and we had Bruce Suter at the end of the game. So, you know, that was um, that was a great way to finish my last full year because I found out later from the Elias uh, Stats Bureau, no professional player in any professional sport has played 24 years before getting a championship ring. So... Uh, uh, to be able to get that in my 24th and final season, uh, you can understand why that was my most exciting season, and I'm really uh, thankful that I was a member of that team. And then you were able to have this 25 you know, sort of year of career again in broadcasting, where you were broadcasting Yankee games and Twins games, and on the, on the MLB network you with Bob Costas, so and uh, on ESPN, on CBS, everything. I mean, I've seen everyone who's watched baseball has seen you, and you brought the game to them. So it's really cool that you've had this second career in broadcasting. Yeah, I was very fortunate. You know, I segued right in from playing, which I was actually. Uh, 45 when I went to spring training with the Pirates in uh, 84. And then um, I got right into broadcasting during college games. Years ago, back in the 70s, if there was a rain delay, 
they would ask one of the players to come up to the broadcast booth and still, you know, just tell stories because they didn't <laughs> have alternative programming to go to. And so I did that with the Phillies with Richie Ashburn and Harry Callis. And uh, there was a young man named Jody Shapiro who was with Major League Films at the time. And he said, you know, you should look at getting into this business. And so when we had uh, a player strike at 81, he called me and said, uh, the home team sports network, which carried the Oriole games, even though Major League Baseball wasn't uh, wasn't playing then, he said, we're going to do AAA games. Would you like to go to Rochester and do a game with Ralph Kiner? Actually, the shortstop for Rochester was Cal Ripken, and one of the starting pitchers was Mike Boddicker. So that uh, 50-day uh, work stoppage that we had, I did a half a dozen at least games of AAA, and that's where... I kind of got the word out, and people, you know, you you sort of put a tape together, and I uh, appealed to ESPN, where I got a chance to do some work there later on TBS, and that's kind of where it started, and it just snowballed into uh, here we are in 2022, and I've been doing that for uh, over 36 years. Amazing, amazing, and you wrote the book, The Good is, Good is Gold, uh, at, which is available on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, everything. I encourage people to read it because you have some, you, you talk about your, your background and your life story, but then you said, I got some opinions and you certainly have opinions. And I love this section in the book where you go, this is what I don't like about baseball. And a lot of things you say, a lot of people also say in terms of, I'll just throw a few out there, but like the pitch counts and the analytics and the speed guns and the launch angles and that use that you think it just takes away from just the enjoyment of watching the beautiful game of baseball. Yeah, I think what it really does is it, it really hurts the players because the players today have more natural ability than than we did. Than, than I, I, I noticed that when Andy Pettit came up with the Yankees. He could do things at age 22 that I couldn't do. And yet we've, we've kind of hothoused these, these players and, and sort of tamped down their ability because they're so interested in protecting them from injuries. And we've having, we're having more injuries than ever before. And as we discussed earlier, you don't go to a game and see your star player play or see the pitcher pitch nine innings. And I just think the analytics, the radar gun, uh, all the science that has invaded the game. Uh, you know, if, if I were younger and, and had uh, Elon Musk's money, I'd buy a franchise and I'd say no analytics, no radar guns, no video. I'm just going to throw the ball out there and say, let's go play like you were in high school and uh, try to win a pennant. That'd be a lot of fun to do that because uh, I think the players are capable of doing it. Yeah, when I was reading your book, I said, I go, I wonder if he's going to mention about when Cash, uh, the manager of Tampa, removed Ian Snell in the World Series. And right then, like the next paragraph, you're like, I can't believe I'm watching World Series and Ian Snell's pitching lights out and they removed him from the game just for that. Yeah, I was talking to Sandy Koufax, uh, who gave me a nice congratulatory call after the Hall of Fame announcement, and I said, Sandy, you know, in Game 7, uh, you were struggling a little bit in the, uh, I think it was the sixth inning, might have been the fifth, he, he couldn't throw his curveball anymore, and it was the third time through the batting order, and we had a couple men on, they actually had Drysdale warming up, and uh, Junior Gilliam made a great play on a ground ball, but I said, Sandy, if that happened today, we'd have had you out of the game, because analytics would say, wait, wait, we can't have him pitching <laughs> through the batting order the third time. <laughs> what a break that would have been for us. <laughs> right. And then you mentioned about all the great players you play with, players that you like, players you did like. And one of the players you mentioned in the book that you did not have high regard for, per se, would be Alex Rodriguez. And you were pretty critical of him in terms of, uh, you know, his involvement with steroids and other things. Yeah, I think uh, I think I would be more critical of baseball uh, as much as with Alex because he was – suspended twice i mean he was he was caught twice he was actually suspended for a full year and with any commissioner in the past he would have been suspended for life so i i really thought that he uh he kind of took unfair advantage of the game but the game you know let him in but i i just think if he uh if he had been able to carry himself like Derek jeter i think he would have been much more uh, you know acceptable as a fan and uh so from from that part that standpoint i uh you know i just didn't warm up to that no, no question about his talent you know he was as talented a player as as there was but i i think he could have 
uh, I think he put obviously would have been a surefire Hall of Fame candidate, and I think he would have been a lot more popular a player uh, in the eyes of the of the fans and the fans in general because uh, everybody I talk to now, you know, they they don't really have a, a high regard for him despite the fact that he he uh, amassed a lot of impressive numbers. And then later in your career, where you're able to keep extending it, um, you've talked about how you talked to Frank Job, the noted doctor who did the Tommy John surgery. He started working on Nautilus machines to try to get your strength. So I guess it, it was frustrating for you to see. The, then when you retired, really the steroid era was after you were finished playing about what happened in baseball uh, with, you know, in terms of taking that just recovering and working out into the next extreme, really. Yeah, and again, I think that's that's baseball's mistake. You know, we had the player strike in 94, and I think if Bud Selig could do it over again, he would have handled that differently. You know, the World Series was canceled, and a lot of fans really uh, lost their interest in baseball. I don't know if we've ever recovered from that because baseball attendance is down, ratings are down, and now that the other sports continue to play, I mean, the uh, NHL just ended, the NBA just uh, ended recently. And here we are uh, to start a summer. Baseball used to own the summer, but they don't anymore. And I think baseball's uh, desire to kind of make people forget about the 94 strike is that they knew that the steroid era was starting. But, you know, McGuire and Sosa were in that historic home run battle, and that created a lot of interest. So I think they kind of let it slide under the rug. And, you know, I'd have to be honest, if I were playing in that era and there wasn't any penalty, I would have been tempted to do the same thing. But I just I think baseball made a big mistake uh, by allowing that to happen. And I have to blame the Players Association as well. I had a great relationship with Marvin Miller, but Marvin was so civil rights, you know, heavy and he just thought any kind of drug testing was uh, an infringement on our privacy. And I always said, Marvin, our sport depends on the integrity, the, the trust of the fans. And the fan doesn't want to go to the park and say, well, this guy's, you know, doing stuff illegally. And uh, so that that's what I think was kind of a, an ugly time for that steroid era till they finally, you know, got testing in and, and put a stop to it. You know, I found it funny in your book, you, you, you talked about George Steinbrenner and you had dealings with him as a player where he promised you a contract and then reneged. And then as a broadcaster, when you were nervous that he was going to tell you what to say and how to say it. And uh, just to, to summarize a little bit your interactions with one of the most famous owners in the history of baseball. Yeah, I think when you're a player, George uh, enjoys taking advantage of you, which <laughs> he did with me. He uh, he promised me things verbally and then I had never dealt with him before. So, you know, I was always kind of of a mind to just trust someone until they gave me reason not to trust him. And eventually that came about with George. But then when I was an announcer for the Yankees, he, he did some wonderful things. I mean, actually, uh, last week, Thursday, the Yankees gave me uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award, and that was presented to me by the by the Steinbrenner family. So uh, we, we had a really good relationship uh, at the end, despite uh, the way it started when I was a player and he was an owner. It, it was uh, stunning when you read your book that you mentioned, even people that you've had problems with. Oh, I, I had a contract dispute with this person, or this umpire threw me out of the game and never gave me the right calls, but I'm still a longtime friend with them. I see them, I talk to them. So it just shows the type of character and person you are. The fact that you remain friends with all these people that have maybe wronged you in your life, but the fact that you were able to put things under the rug and, and become, fresh, stay friend, or become friends. Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, like Joel McDonald, the general manager in St. Louis, he was just playing the game. They had us under their thumb. Not much we could do about it. And, uh, you know, you you, uh, you you stood up for yourself as much as you could. But then when you get them away from the baseball life and just into public life, why, uh, they're good people normally. I mean, good people, uh, but they just used their power in baseball to uh, take advantage of certain people. And I happen to be one of those they try to take advantage of. And then one final question. We're talking to Jim Cott. Uh, author of Good is Gold and who's going to be a Hall of Fame inductee at the end of the month. Um, you're just, in the past few years, your work with the World Baseball Classic, the fact that going over to Australia and New Zealand, spending a month there, uh, bringing the game to them, you've really been spreading baseball around the world, which is pretty cool. 
Yeah, I got a chance to do the World Baseball Classic back in 2009, and I've done actually three of them. They have been four years. And then through that, I met some of the people that were involved in international baseball, like Robert Einhorn, who played briefly for the Yankees, uh, ran the Dutch program. And then I met Ryan Flynn, who was also a Yankee farmhand, and he ran the New Zealand program. And uh, my wife is an avid fly fisher, so we uh, we ended up going over there for a couple of months. And the Kiwis, uh, baseball is kind of a new sport to them. They've played a lot of cricket and rugby and softball. And, and now they're beginning to uh, – they have a professional team in the uh, Australian Baseball League, so – Baseball is gaining more and more popularity, but uh, that was a lot of fun to go over there, not just for the baseball, but just the country in general and the people. It's just a wonderful place to visit. Well, Jim, you've had just an amazing career in playing, managing, and uh, playing and and uh, broadcasting. And just a you know, congratulations once again being inducted in the Hall of Fame. What a great honor! And I appreciate you coming on our show and talking about it a little bit. Well, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it and uh, appreciate it very much. I'm looking forward to uh, uh, the exciting days ahead. <laughs> It'll be great. It'll be great. So congratulations once again. and such a worthy honor for someone who had such a, I said, a f- tremendous career and your love of baseball. And, and uh, the book, I encourage anyone to read it because it really is uh, a long history of what baseball is and, and, and I, just your opinions of the, the game. Just tremendous. Thank you very much. Great interview there with Jim Cott here on Ira on Sports. So, Ira, what's the plan this week? I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I'll tell you what. I, I think next year. How about we talk about where Ira will be next year, this time of year? I love to go to England. I think that I could go. You could go to the first week of Wimbledon. You could go to the Formula One in the middle. And then you get the British Open on the back end after Wimbledon's over. Like <laughs> This would be a great like three weeks to England. I've seen none of those things. I've never been there. But that, I think, would be so cool um, to go to. But this week, maybe a baseball game. But the Yankees and Mets are in the town. If I'm in New York, uh, then we'll see what happens. But uh, we definitely will have a lot to talk about in sports. I, we're working on some really great guests uh, coming up. So I, I'm excited for, for – I mean, look, this still – we got golf. With the British Open, with Wimbledon, there's still I, all my favorite things, and you know, football's just right around the corner. <laughs> Thank you so much to Jim Cod. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.